welcome to Theologizing Life with Anthony Cottrell and the one and only Professor Matt Tracy. I'm back. <laughs> He's back. He was not with us uh, for our last episode, but he he decided to come back. And we have a unique episode for <laughs> I you. I decided today. to come back. My daughter was sick. I can tell them. I just ditched you. <laughs> I mean, that's what I told him in the last episode. No, I mean, I listened to the last episode, which was very yeah. good, by the way. Yes, I enjoyed uh, our conversation with Zach Zamara. So we have a very special episode for you today. By special, I mean it's different than our last couple, where we've been interviewing guests, but it's it's not new. It's more like vintage Matt and Anthony. Yeah. There you go. We're going back to, uh, you just got us for this month's episode. We're going to talk about... Uh, we're going to talk about following Jesus in uh, a pluralist society, or what does it look like to navigate culture as a Jesus follower? Um, both those things in culture that perhaps conflict with Jesus or do not align with the way of Jesus, or some things that are even just outright in opposition to the way of Jesus. But then there are also things that are not, like how do we engage things without just condemning culture or society outright? But before we do, if you remember Vintage Anthony and Matt, we always like to share about a news story, a unique or funny news story, and Matt has one for us today. So, Matt, tell us about, yeah. tickle our funny bone, Matt. I mean, this one's not funny. It's more just kind of cool. Uh, if, you're, if you're into biblical archaeology, this is kind of a cool development that they've been working on. So there's a a site in in southwest samaria where they are beginning to dig archaeologists are beginning to dig um, looking for joshua's tomb so they believe they've pinpointed kind of the location where um, the book of joshua says you know that the israelites gave this land over to joshua and he was buried there uh, along with caleb so there's a potential that they're going to stumble upon a really really important uh, tomb of a really, really important biblical figure. So it'd be really interesting. Yeah. And I, I love biblical archaeology. It's not often like reported on in the news because it's kind of a niche, you know, not really interest doesn't really interest a whole lot of people, but I think Christians should pay attention to it because we're finding like time and time again that archaeology it it corroborates our faith a lot more than um people might realize. So yeah, that's really cool. So it it didn't take our funny bone though. Sorry. That's okay. I didn't look up a I didn't look up a story, but I did see someone share, and so I didn't investigate this. So don't quote me on this. But I I saw some sort of uh, someone share some sort of article title about um, the Ark encounter was having some sort of insurance dispute over uh, flooding, <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> flood damage. <laughs> Which, it's just kind of ironic. <laughs> you sure that wasn't like the Babylon Bee? That was like... <laughs> no. No, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it was real. I just don't know all the details or facts. Huh? So you have to That's go. So uh, you have to go googling on your own about that one but uh um yeah i thought it was kind of funny that's great <laughs> yeah <clears throat> well yeah matt let's uh let's dive into talking about following jesus before we dive in too much like let's define what we mean when we say we're a christian or a jesus follower or um a believer like what are some of the things you mean when we say that i think the the 
kind of key way that I would boil it down is that you have submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus. So, I mean, people might say like, you've, you've asked Jesus to be Lord of your life. Um, Mm -hmm. Meaning that his calling is now your calling. His desires are now your desires. Um, His posture toward the world, toward people, toward faith is now your posture toward the world. So it talks about, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit transforming us into the image of Jesus and that that journey of transformation is i think defines what a jesus follower is yeah yeah and i think i would agree i think there is this sort of the foundational what we'd say beliefs of our religion which i don't think is bad religion is not bad but um it can i think it can be sort of polluted or corrupted by things but there are these doctrinal beliefs that uh there's one god creator of heaven and earth uh, that humanity has sinned, Jesus in God incarnate came, uh, took upon himself the weight of sin, uh, died in, in a sense in our place, but but he was raised to new life. He was resurrected. And through believing in Jesus, through believing um, in that story, and I don't mean story as in fiction, I mean, believing that that is what defines reality, uh, that somehow our life, Paul says it this way, our life is hidden with Christ and we are therefore raised with Christ. We have this hope of new life. And so there is hope of life after the grave. All that said, those sort of doctrinal or or belief things that religious belief things that we had affirmed that sort of distinguish Christianity. For me, I like to clarify following the way of Jesus. It now means not just that I'm believe that Jesus was God died on the cross for my sin. So I can go to heaven. It means I believe and want to seek that Jesus gets to define my reality moving forward. Like the way of Jesus, the pattern that he lived, I need to adopt and seek to imitate. Paul says be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Right? So like when I talk about being a Jesus father, when we talk about being a Jesus father in culture, when I say that I'm not saying believing the right things, about the Bible and our faith, I'm talking about how do we navigate the manner in which we live in our current time and place and culture and setting. So right. that's what we're that's what we're talking about, right? Right. Um, and I believe like there there's a place for correct doctrine, correct theology, but I think the emphasis that we both have when it comes to being a Christian is um, a, a desire to allow, like you said, Jesus to transform your reality going forward. And so like correct doctrine, correct teaching, that's all a part of that. It's important. Um, and there's a place for that as well, but that's not the core issue at hand. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, we will speak more to that in a little bit, I think, because there's some things I think are, are, are important to note about that, but um, what are, some of the, like, there's some divides, it seems, uh, or, or obstacles, perhaps, in following Jesus in, in our time. Um, we've sort of identified them as there seems to be these dichotomies, these either or ways of viewing the world, these dichotomies between the sacred and the secular, or between the physical and the spiritual, or even between uh those who are saved and then the rest of the world and even other people who are not yet believers. And it seems like at least in certain Christian circles, 
there's these opposing and we sort of made enemies out of the secular or enemies out of even the physical or enemies out of the world and people. And so navigating our current cultural context, our current time and place as a Jesus follower means like waging a culture war or rejecting the secular or, you know, huddling in, in what I call holy huddles. And, and yeah, what are your, what are some of your thoughts about that? Go ahead and just wax eloquent, Matt. Is that the battle we're fighting? Yeah. And I think I've heard that term before culture war when it comes to like Christian values being kind of under assault, so to speak in today's day and age. And I don't know, that's, that doesn't seem to me like a, productive way to engage the the situation we're not fighting a war against our culture right we're fighting a war against the lies of the enemy you know the spiritual forces and Mm -hmm. so so we're not we're not going to war with people we're not going to war with like man-made creation um and so i think that the divides that we tend to you know lean toward like separating ourselves from the world i mean the bible says like don't be someone who is of this world and we can talk about what that means, you know, maybe, but um, again, there's a place for that, but, but the divides, I think that we manufacture are not divides that Jesus himself would have um, advocated for. Yeah. So, so how do you think of what we would call things that are sacred and things that are secular? Um, And I, I think, when we talk about these, I think what people, it, it's like the sacred is things that are inherently connected to like Christianity, or at least you throw a Christian adjective before it. So it's like a Christian mm-hmm. t-shirt, Christian music, yeah. Christian movies, mm-hmm. uh, Christian jewelry. And so that makes it sacred now, as opposed to the secular, which is anything that is not Christian, but like can things I don't, I don't know, like the, the whole conversation around this is like sort of, it's an interesting, it's actually interesting concepts if you're going to take seriously what it means to be a Christian, it means to be a Christ follower. So like, can music be, you know, I don't know, you know, does that make sense? So what do you, how do you understand sort of this sacred secular, like what's valuable, what's valuable about distinguishing between that which is in alignment with God and that which is not, but what is maybe an error or not helpful when thinking about sacred and secular, how would you? I think we, when we separate ourselves from, when we make that heart of part of a line between our faith and the world that we live in, we miss out on some of the inherent beauty that our world has to offer through different cultures, even like, you know, different styles of, practicing faith i want to be careful when i when i what i say here but um you know different styles of music ways of expressing creativity foods like there is inherent beauty in the world that that really just enriches the human experience and when we say you know i'm not going to listen to that person's music or watch this director's film uh, because they're not a christian and therefore what they have to say what they believe is not valuable to me Mm -hmm. i think we're missing out on some some important dialogue that we could 
potentially be having. And also, just because a person is not a Christian doesn't mean that they don't have some semblance of truth and conviction that was given to them by God. Because, you know, they're, they're, every person is made in God's image. And so God has implanted his character. You know, it might be deep down for some, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, we have the mark of God on all of us. And so just because someone isn't, you know, inherently a professing, you know, worshiping Christian doesn't mean that they can't grab hold of some truth that is, you know, God's truth. Yeah. And so I think when we draw that line in the sand and separate ourselves from the world, we, we kind of refuse to dialogue with people who are different from us. And we refuse to dialogue with, with individuals who, well, whom God loves, first of all. And so therefore we should love them and engage with them. But uh, we also refuse to dialogue with different perspectives, which kind of creates this, holy huddle as you yeah. as you put it yeah i think maybe a way to to say this too what you're saying is we believe culture is amoral there right. are aspects of culture that can be immoral like if within a culture um amoral is, and immoral as well yes. yeah yeah so amoral um, meaning without moral it's neutral yeah and then immoral is you know it's not moral. <laughs> something we, yeah, something we'd say is is wrong or not ethical, right? Or not righteous. And so, if within a culture, it's acceptable to treat uh, these people of certain social categories as less than human, like they're 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 essentially animals. Like that's an immoral aspect of a culture uh, that is harmful, and you you don't need to accept that or adopt that or whatever. But then there's other things of culture. And I think the best example is food. I think sometimes we just don't even think about this, but food is an expression of cultural diversity. And mm-hmm. food is a good gift of God uh, that even in scripture is something that is to be celebrated. And so like uh, eating, um, you know, Matt and I, there's a Thai restaurant in Warsaw that we we like. There's, oh yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> and there's uh, Mexican uh, restaurants that are more or less authentic. Oh, was strange. You know? Like we, I live in Warsaw, Indiana, and there's some, an awesome, um, Hispanic culture here and some of the best Mexican food you'll ever find. Yeah. It's, in our it's good. Tiny middle Midwest town, <laughs> which is yep. it's interesting. But anyway, good going. Yeah, no, it's, it's really good. And that's, those are cultural expressions that we wouldn't say, like it is not, uh, immoral, but then we, but then if you go to music or movies or other things, it's like we begin labeling things as secular and not, uh, and therefore something to be rejected. And I think sometimes that's unhelpful. There can be parts of music, like the lyrics perhaps, or things in movies that uh, demonstrate something as immoral, but sometimes culture itself or the secular world itself um, isn't necessarily moral or immoral. Uh, and, and I think where this can be challenging too, I, I want, we weren't going to go here, but I think sometimes people where this divide can also be challenging is people see like vocational ministry as a sacred job. Um, but then those who work in a factory or those who work in an office, or even those who work at a hospital as being a secular job. Mm-hmm. And I think, no, like look at it through a different lens. In what ways are you contributing to life and life-giving things and and helping things thrive what ways are you reflecting the image of god through creativity and ingenuity Mm -hmm. and innovation like 
there are things about your job that may not be uh, directly connected to church work, but it it can still be just as much an act of you reflecting the image of God in a way that worships and glorifies and points to God. Uh, right. And and so seeing like my secular job versus my ministry job and seeing a divide there, I think like can be unhelpful. We need to redeem some of those secular things we do and sort of infuse them with mm-hmm. the spiritual or with the sacred. Right. Right. I mean, the, the first command that God gave Adam and Eve was to work and to create, you know, create new life, um, tend his creation, work in mm-hmm. his creation. So expressions of human creativity whatever they may be um those all point back to a god who created us uh, the god who creates we create because god is creative yeah um and i think when we acknowledge that we can find we can find beauty in even aspects of culture that we might find secular you know again like there are immoral um, aspects of culture, like you said, that we can reject. So I feel like, you know, Christians, like we, we can't really accept those as inherently beautiful. Uh, but yeah. there are aspects of culture that are more neutral, amoral, that when we engage with them, we can actually discover truth. Yeah. So, yeah, I, uh, um, I agree. And one of the ways, I don't know who said it, but I've heard, I don't think it was C.S. Lewis, but, I, but I've encountered this idea that Satan's not original. He simply corrupts mm-hmm. uh, what God has created. He corrupts something good. So, so essentially it's the idea that everything that we'd say is immoral or bad doesn't have any um, sort of substance of its own. It's more of a corruption of something God created good. And so yeah. it's, it's, part of being a Jesus follower and being salt and light and ambassadors and all those metaphors is sort of reclaiming what has been corrupted and, mm-hmm. and redeeming it and renewing it uh, in, in light of the kingdom. Yeah. But so one of the other divides sometimes as we talk about this, like sacred secular, there's also sometimes this divide between like the physical and spiritual. Like I used, and I used to think this, I used to think like, man, if I just didn't have my body, especially as I'll, you know, be vulnerable for a moment, especially as a young teenager with raging hormones and like uh, starting to, to experience um, what I would say, lustful desires for uh, towards, towards women in a way that's like, again, that's something God created good. Like there's, there's a good thing there, but then when it, it begins to be selfish and this just lust for more, um, God says that's uh, sort of grasping for more than, the good he gave us. Um, mm-hmm. But as a teenager, I remember thinking like, if I just didn't have this body, if I was just spiritual, if my, just my spirit were free from this body, I would be holy. I would be a good Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I've learned like, that's not exactly the picture scripture paints, is it Matt? No. Um, I tell this to my, I, I spend a lot of time on this in my class because it's kind of a found it's the foundation of the Bible in Genesis one through three, basically like lays out the problem of the world, the human condition. And the first truth that we see in the Bible is that humans are God's crowning achievement. We're not 
we're not meant to be anything other than humans. Um, you know, God created plants and, and animals and water. And he said it was good. And then he created humanity and said it was very good. Like we are the, the icing on top of the cake of God's creation. Yeah. And so um, being a person is inherently beautiful because uh, being a person means that we are the only beings on earth that can have an intimate relationship with our creator. And so we, we don't, we can't strive to be anything other than human. That's impossible. Um, we can't somehow like change our genetic code. <laughs> and, you know, that's not even what God promises in the end. You know, the, the, the promise, the hope that we have is resurrection, restored bodies. We're not going to be yeah. like angels floating around in the clouds. Like we are not, we were not created to be, nor will we ever be anything other than human. And so there, there is no divide there. There, there shouldn't be any kind of divide between what we experience in our, in our humanity and what God would have for us, you know, to experience. Like you always say, we're embodied souls. That's one of yep. the, the things that you, you say all the time. That's one of your, uh, the things that you remind me of sometimes when you're, you know, giving me counsel. And it, yes, it's, it's true. Yeah. Uh, I say it to our congregation a lot. We, we are embodied souls. And I had a professor say like a disembodied hope is not full victory. Like mm -hmm. uh, a immortal soul. Also, I think there's an argument that like, that's a little bit more reflective of Greek paganism. This idea that mm -hmm. the afterlife is this disembodied uh, existence of our immortal souls. The picture mm -hmm. we have scripture says that Jesus is the first fruits. The picture we have is of resurrection and Jesus's resurrected body. Now it seems that that resurrected body is a little bit different than uh, the unresurrected or unglorified body, um, but it's no less physical. Like the gospels make it very, uh, we, we sometimes read through this and don't recognize it, but like that scene in John's gospel where Jesus eats breakfast with them on the, the seashore, he makes fish and he eats with them uh, where, where they can touch him. Uh, they're, they're, they're trying to make a point. He was bodily raised. He's not like a, a ghost or is it apparition, you know, like he's, yeah. he's, uh, he was bodily raised. And that is the core of, that is one of the core doctrines of faith, but I should back up the other core piece to that in order for him to be bodily raised. We also affirm that he was bodily, <laughs> uh, born the incarnation, like God mm -hmm. took on human flesh. And so, uh, God, the, the, the hope of redemption is the redemption of our bodies and the hope of redemption for creation is new creation, a renewed, restored creation back to that, what you referenced in Genesis, uh, that very good yeah. state of creation. Yeah. Um, like God doesn't, God doesn't want to tear down what he built. He wants to restore that, which is good. And there's, so, there's, uh, there are those scriptures where, where Paul talks about like, his flesh. And I think we need to distinguish like um, there's, there is, uh, you said it a second ago, but like, I think um, we, there is a divide between the physical and spiritual uh, because of the brokenness in our lives. But the aim of the, the good news is not to further separate that divide, but to rather heal yeah. that divide and make it whole. Right. And, um, so there is this struggle sometimes with the ways that our physical bodies have been corrupted with sin. And that's, that's both 
like moral sin, but also the, the physical like health issues we deal with that also speaks to it. Like our, our decaying bodies is something scripture talks about too, as being a result of the fall. So um, there is that, but the goal or the hope is for that to be healed and made whole. Um, and there is also scriptures that talk about like the earth being consumed with fire. And, and we need to understand that fire in scripture is often this purifying agent. Like mm-hmm. it's uh, God's intention uh, is to, Paul writes that all creation groans in hopeful anticipation for the day the sons of God will be revealed. Like all of creation is waiting to be redeemed. So essentially in in short, we've just talked a lot about this, but there's not really a divide necessarily between the physical and spiritual. And there's actually an ancient sort of heresy called Gnosticism that tried to make this divide that like the spiritual is inherently good and the physical is inherently bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of why this heresy is it said, Jesus didn't take on human flesh. He was a spirit. Um, and then there are some extreme versions of it. So there are some versions that like uh, harmed the body. Like what's that, uh, what's that called? That kind of like spirituality when like self, essentially like self-harming. Flagellation or something yeah. like that. Like the, the monks would whip, whip themselves in the back. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, that's not the way of Jesus. And then there's another extreme that said, well, since the flesh doesn't matter, like go ahead and indulge in every pleasure because only the spirit matters. And uh, right. a lot of the gospels, a lot of the new Testament writers are actually addressing that, uh, ideology, uh, the mm-hmm. Gnostic heresy. So there's a little tidbit, uh, you can do some more church history. Um, so Matt, we've kind of danced around it, but like, so does that mean that the world, when Paul talks about the world and then the people who are unbelievers, like, are we, as we navigate our time and place as Jesus followers, are we fighting a war? Are we fighting a battle with, against the world and people who are not yet believers? I mean, a war would imply that we want their defeat (laughs) when when really what we want is their restoration. Yeah. And so, no, we're not fighting a war. That's good. Like, I, I, I know good, wonderful, genuine Christians um, who are so grieved by the state of the world that like, um, they long for the destruction of evil people and justice to be served. And they rejoice when they see like, you know, the CIA just killed a really prominent Taliban leader through a, a drone strike yesterday. And there are people who are absolutely rejoicing that, you know, justice has been served. Um, and that's a very human way of thinking about things, I think. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. in God's view, justice um, has been served. And his intention for all people is that they would be redeemed um not through punishment but through you know the resurrection of christ and so yeah i guess i guess the idea of like fighting a culture war means that there's going to be a winner and a loser (laughs) um and on as the you know the, the winning side we have to go and like take back holy ground and, and, and things like that. And I just think that's the wrong question to be asking the wrong approach. Yeah, I do too. I I believe one of, and and why this matters, I think is when we see people as the enemy, first of all, Paul says, we do not fight against flesh and blood. 
um, but against principalities and powers uh, and um, yeah, uh, spiritual forces in high places. Like uh, there's a darkness that animates the evil in our world. And um, there are humans that are enslaved to that and some that are even victims to it and, and Jesus and God's desires to liberate them. Um, so I think it's dangerous as we can begin to demonize and see people that God loves and people whom God desires to rescue as the enemy. And that posture is not helpful if you're going to follow the way of Jesus, you know, like um, it's sort of uh, actually contrary to following the way of Jesus. Uh, and there's this cool scripture just to also affirm what we're saying with, with scripture. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Like, I don't know if there's any more explicit of a declaration from God than that. Like, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Well, if we're to imitate God, we should take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn. Like, so I think seeing people as the enemy uh, can set us up to have the wrong posture. I think seeing the world as being so corrupted that God just is going to cast it aside isn't helpful. And this is this could be another podcast, but I've been convicted. And I want to be clear, this isn't everyone's conviction, and I don't need to impose my convictions on other people. But like um, we try to we try to recycle. Now we're not fanatics about it, but like the world was created good. And the one of the part of the first command God gave to humanity was to um, exercise dominion. Uh, to mm -hmm. do the earth and exercise dominion. And it's this idea of essentially being sort of these uh, almost like vice regents or uh, these rulers on behalf of God in creation. And, and the goal is to rule it in a way that would uh, please God in a way that would reflect mm -hmm. God. Um, so the world, even creation itself, I mean, the Psalms talk about how, how the, the earth I think it's the Psalms. The earth is full of the glory of God. Like mm -hmm. creation itself is not the enemy. Um, and then even the world, like the way the larger world, if we talk about people, we kind of already addressed that, but like the world out there, um, we're to, this is the way I like to think about it. We're to reject the way of the world, not, but we don't reject the world for God so loved the world. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. That's what I'd say about that. Do you have any other thoughts about that? No, I think that's well, well summarized. Don't reject the world, reject the way of the world. I think that's a, a key truth. Yeah. For... Well, which kind of leads us to, um, well, okay. So there are these divides, but how do we cross the divides? And you have sort of these three ways of, of kind of framing how we interact with the context and culture in which we live. Could you uh, sort of explain and tell us, lead us through those? Well, I mean, there's more than three and these are just kind of three broad stroke, like um, frameworks that I was kind of came up with as I was thinking about this. But when we, when we approach a secular world, quote unquote, you know, a world that is not, um, following the way of Jesus. Um, I think there are a couple of ways that Christians tend to like to lean toward when we, when we, when we go into the world, we, when we think about how to interact with these things, interact with culture, interact with people, I think we, we can, we, one of the approaches is assimilation. Um, 
which means we, we kind of mold our doctrine to fit our culture. Um, and we, we yeah. kind of see, we kind of see some of these things and, and some of the, the cultural issues that are going on now with like LGBTQ activism and um, abortion. And there are some people who Christians who might go back to their Bible and, and try and, and justify these things through scripture, kind of molding our, our Christian doctrine to fit our cultural norm. Um, another approach is withdrawal. And I think this is what we might call, you know, what we referred to last a couple minutes ago is, a, you know, the holy huddle. You know, whenever there's a, a cultural, an aspect of our culture kind of threatens our doctrine, threatens our our theology and view of the world, we 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 shy away from it. We we just, we don't engage with it. Target a couple of years ago, uh, they came out with a, a marketing campaign where they were very actively supportive of the LGBTQ movement. A lot of Christians boycotted Target. You know, I can't shop at Target because I can't support this corporation that doesn't uphold my values. You know, fair enough. But um, in, if that's, you know, if that's your conviction, okay. But I think that's another approach is, you know, when we, we withdraw from things that, that don't agree with or threaten our doctrine. Um, and I think the third, the third approach is the one I would argue is, is correct just in my humble opinion, um, is engagement. So engaging our culture means being aware that as people, as human beings, as embodied souls, we are a product of our culture. There's no way that we can separate ourselves from our culture. The way that we read the Bible is impacted and influenced by our culture. The way that we think about our relationships with our family and friends is impacted uh, by our culture. The way that we view leadership and hierarchy is impacted by our culture and so there's there's nothing we can do to separate ourselves from those things um and so engagement would to, would be to realize that there's no way of there's no way to separate yourself from your culture but you can evaluate culture positive and negative aspects of your of your culture in light of the gospel mm-hmm. meaning that you recognize that there is there can be inherent beauty in that which you might consider secular. There might be inherent truth in some of the things that aren't outwardly, you know, Christian, you know, a, a song on the radio that, that talks about, you know, an aspect of the human condition um, that is inherently true, uh, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not a gospel, uh, a gospel oriented observation about the world. It's just somebody's observation that is true. Um, you're, when you're engaging culture, you can you can look at that person's perspective and say, okay, that's that's right. I, I can see that um, it's not maybe fully true um, because it it doesn't have Jesus at the center, but there is truth there to be um, grasped. So, um, yeah, in, assimilation, withdrawal, engagement. You you might have other other approaches that you've seen before, but I think those are kind of three. Um, three big ones that we, we tend to see. And we talked earlier about, not on the podcast, but you and I have talked earlier about like, there's actually biblical precedent or an example of engagement in, in scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, could you, could you tell us about, uh, tell us about the apostle Paul and, yeah, and sort and, of the example he gave us. Yeah. There's a really cool story in Acts 17 where Paul is in Athens, which is the, it is that Athens was like the bedrock of Greek philosophy 
you know, the, the, the pinnacle of like world education, you know, if you think of like an Ivy league college, Oxford mm-hmm. university or Oxford university uh, or something like that, like an institution think- <clears throat> um, that's where, that's where the world's scholars were, were from. Yeah. That's where I think it, it says, uh, I think it says in that chapter two that like, I, I could be wrong if it's there, but I think it says something about like, they sort of enjoyed yeah, I think it is there. Uh, they they enjoyed even just hearing about diverse philosophies. Like, exactly. Like yeah. think think about yeah, think about a bunch of professors like sitting around the public park playing chess and talking about you know uh, all the current mm-hmm. new philosophical, religious, spiritual like ideologies that existed at the time. Right. Yeah. That that's what that's what Paul was walking into. Um, so he was he was walking into an Ivy league college or he was walking into an Oxford university, like with, with a bunch of uh, very well-educated, very um, well-read people. And he's going to go and share the gospel with them. And these Athenians um, it's the Bible says they were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So um, they had, they, they came from a a particular school of, of Greek philosophy uh, and they approached Paul and they, they said, uh, what is this person trying to say? He's supposed to be advocating for foreign gods. Uh, this is verse 18. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they're saying, you know, he's preaching about a God that we've, we've never heard of before. Um, and they took him and brought him to a meeting where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So like you said, they're, they were curious. They, they, mm-hmm. they said, you know, there's, there's a there's knowledge that we don't yet have and we want to understand it and so these people they weren't hostile toward Paul like a lot of people uh, were um, they were more curious and they, they wanted to engage and, and, and understand where he was coming from um, so Paul stood up in the meeting and said people of Athens I see in every way that you are very religious for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And he really beautifully shares um, the truth of the gospel with these people. And so what Paul is doing is he is saying, I've, I've observed that you are very well read and you are very, you are seeking spiritual truth. And that's good. But, but the problem is that um, even the gods that you are finding yourselves worshiping are not enough for you to fully be satisfied. And so you have to make this, this temple for an unknown God, you know, in case you're missing one, um, we're just going to cover all our bases here. And Paul is saying, you know, that unknown God is actually the Lord Jesus, who uh, is, is the true, the one true God, the true um, vehicle for salvation and true spiritual, um, spiritual fulfillment. And so, you know, Paul isn't, uh, he doesn't go into Athens and say, you know, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, I'm not going to engage with them because they're not Christians. Um, They're seeking enlightenment and knowledge through these other schools of thought. Paul goes into this very well-read, very educated society, and he he finds the good in what they're doing. He says, I see you're very religious. I see that you're you're seeking spiritual truth, you're seeking knowledge. but here's where the gaps are. And he uses that cultural element, that cultural um, kind of trademark of Athenian Greece um, to proclaim the truth of Christ. And I think that approach 
like you, you can take that approach to any culture you know a culture who this is a, a ridiculous example you know a culture who worships through food uh just hypothetical um you could say you know food is a, a wonderful gift of god and you can see the beauty in that uh, and point them to the God who gives good gifts and, and proclaim the gospel that way. And so I think that's a really good example of where, you know, Paul observes, un- seeks to understand a culture, um, the culture that he's in, and, and uses that which is good in that culture to point them toward an even greater truth. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, good example of engagement. Um, and what's interesting, too, is in that passage, it says Acts 17, it says, uh, verse 27 says, God did this so uh, that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So mm-hmm. I just want to point out within our holy scriptures is a quote from Greek poets, uh, non-Christian sources, which also reveals that Paul was familiar with the Greek poets and the Greek philosophy. He engaged it in order to as Jesus did, incarnationally enter into it and bring the redemption story to it. Um, I just want to point out another thing that was interesting too, uh, that echoes back what we were saying earlier, says Paul proclaimed the good news of the resurrection to them. There is an emphasis uh, in Acts and as Paul proclaimed the good news on the resurrection, because uh, that's that's the, the essential piece of the gospel. I also wanted to point out, so again, assimilation, withdrawal, and engagement. There were examples of this sort of in the New Testament context too. Uh, So the Sadducees were kind of a group that assimilated. Uh, They were sort of the aristocracy and they uh, benefited from their relationship with Rome. And they were sort of, if you want to use today's terminology, they were kind of like the, the Jewish liberals of their day. And uh, in some ways they assimilated to the culture around them and uh, enjoyed the benefits of sort of keeping Rome happy. Uh, Their power and comforts were preserved. Then there were the Pharisees and they were kind of a little bit on the withdrawal, um, but even within the withdrawal, like they, they set themselves apart and, but to the detriment of their ministry to the common people, they were so set apart. uh, Jesus sort of condemns them for essentially making it too hard for the common people to, to be in relationship with God or to feel like they could be in relationship with God. But then there was even a further extreme group of the scenes who were like monks and they completely withdrew from society and went out into these desert communities. Um, but then we have Jesus comes and the incarnate living word of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And he engages the culture around him and interacts with tax collectors and uh, sinners and prostitutes and gets accused of being a drunkard and a glutton like uh, Mm -hmm. Jesus models. And so this, again, echoes what we said at the beginning, Matt and I, when we think about being Christians, we think about it in terms of following the way of Jesus. So, um, so we want to follow the way of engagement. Similar to your three things, I heard someone say several years ago, um, a youth pastor friend talked about cultural things and talked about how there are some things we can perceive uh they're amoral like you don't really need much discernment like you can receive that taco you know like and you can enjoy oh, it with I things. will i yeah. will receive the taco uh, it is tuesday as we're recording it's taco tuesday yeah. um, taco tuesday. um but it will be wednesday when you listen to this so taco tuesday will be over but you can receive that taco with thanksgiving and gladness in your heart then there are things that we need to reject um 
there, there are some things, and I'm going to go here, there are maybe even some TV shows on Netflix that uh, the content of which does not orient your heart to have in mind the things of God. And maybe you should, maybe you should reject it. It doesn't mean you reject all TV shows. It means there are some things that maybe we need to reject. And then there's some things we can redeem. And that's sort of what Paul does. There's this, these secular Greek philosophers, if you will, that he sort of redeems the truth that they were pointing to. And he sort of, um, he doesn't say it's not true. It's more like it's incomplete truth. And so Mm -hmm. as we redeem, as we participate with Jesus and the kingdom work around us, we participate in this bringing sort of redemptive wholeness to creation. That's the way I would do Isn't that that an easier way of going about sharing the gospel too? Like you're not going into the world and tearing down the foundations of what people believe. You're saying like, there is good in what you believe, but there is more complete truth out there that you can grasp onto. And I think maybe that's what that's maybe that's why I'm so opposed to the idea of culture war is because war is destruction. Whereas mm-hmm, the way of mm-hmm. Jesus is redemption. redemption. Mm, good. That's good, man. You know, Matt, we've said a lot here that'll preach, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I had a, yeah, I had a professor in a class. I was like, Oh, that'll preach. That'll preach. <laughs> that'll preach. <laughs> um, so, uh, one of the things we were thinking about talking about, and we may not spend a lot of time here, but but Matt, you and I have talked a little bit how some people go the route of withdrawal and sort of rejection and the route of seeing these dichotomies. It's like they only see the world through the lens of the the dichotomies and sort of take that culture war approach. And I, I call them heresy hunters or doctrine police. Mm-hmm. Um have you have you encountered that? What's your experience been? And and we won't drop any names. Uh, here, but what's your, what's, have you encountered what I'm talking about? Or is this just unique to the corners of the internet? I find. No, it's not just, it's not just you. And um, yeah, I, I feel like in, especially, you know, you and I are, you know, have seminary educations. And so we've kind of encountered, I'm sure people who are well-read very well, well convicted of what they believe. Um, and so they're more prone to, completely discount um a church or an individual or a pastor just based on an element of their theology that they disagree with and so and they, they throw out this term heresy like it's mm-hmm. just like i don't agree with that that's not what heresy means yeah um, that's not even close to what heresy means uh but they but they use that as kind of like a sanctified way of saying i don't want to learn from you you're what you believe is not valuable to me um and they disengage altogether. And so like you think people, you know, especially uh, I think mega churches are a big target for this. You know, mm-hmm. they're, a, they're a big popular church. So they must be uh, preaching a false gospel of all that, of all those people want to go there. And, and so they, they go through these churches like sermon archive or whatever, and they mm-hmm. dig out this one clip from five years ago where a pastor said something that might not be so biblical Um and they write a 10 page blog post about it, about how this yep. church needs to be. It's, it's cancel culture, I guess, in, in Christian circles. Yeah. Um, just based on theology. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's a problem because it turns the church against itself. And if you're on the outside looking in thinking, you're thinking, you know, why would I want to be part of this church? Why would I want to follow this Jesus? If his people can't even get along with each other. Yeah. So that's kind of been my experience. 
Yeah, mine too. And I found like I have found blog posts where it's like this person's entire blog platform is is based on finding things to criticize another believer's doctrine. Uh, I found YouTube channels where the whole YouTube channel, you know, and they have clip sort of these clickbait titles like mm-hmm. fill in name of mega church pastor said what or mm-hmm. uh, you know a picture in the the thumbnail of well known pastor with heretic question mark you know um or false teacher and they go after these people and don't get me wrong like there are some there's some things out there that i think we need to have discernment about but like i i start to have questions about like if your entire you see it as your ministry Mm -hmm. to tear down other people um and you do it sort of very uncharitably like you do pull a clip of something they say out of context, or you, you search for those things to find fault in. I just start to have questions about the the motives of your heart. And mm-hmm. um, it's very off-putting to me. So when it comes to preachers and authors and blog writers and podcasters that I look to, and this is for what it's worth for anyone, for any listeners, um, I really look for humility. And even if I don't agree with them on everything, I am more drawn to people. I, I have experienced that there's something in my heart and soul that resonates with people uh, that are humble. And when I see what scripture says is the fruit of the spirit, love, mm-hmm. joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Like when I see these things exhibited, uh, I'm, I'm more drawn to Christ than when I see these Facebook videos or YouTube platforms where it's just, it's like outrage, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just outrage over doctrinal error of this fill in the blank pastor. And yeah. so, um, and notice too, we we're trying not to drop names. Like I'm, I'm, I also just don't like the, this culture of like, I'm going to call out so-and-so pastor because they're famous. I have no relationship with them. I have not went to them in person and confronted them on something. If I really think they're in grievous error, uh, and I actually love them. Paul tells us to speak the truth in love. In 1 Corinthians 8, uh, 1, it says, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Like mm-hmm. if your entire ministry or your entire view of preserving the doctrine of God is to tear other people down, I want to say like you may be doctrinally accurate, but your, uh, your way of Jesus wrong. <laughs> like um, you're missing the heart of Jesus. Yeah. Um, I think um, when we when we fall into that trap, we kind of make correct doctrine like a a sanctified, you know, salvation by works. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can't be saved unless you are convicted of X, Y, and Z. And we talk about this. There's kind of a concentric circles of um, theology. I think it's an important illustration. Maybe I'll make a, a graphic for it and, and post it along with this episode. Um, but it's three concentric circles. The, se- the center circle is dogma, meaning these are, you know, non-negotiables of the Christian faith. So, for example, uh, Jesus rose from the dead. That is an, a conviction, a belief of Christian faith that, that makes us unique, uniquely Christian that defines our faith, that the resurrection. Um, the Trinity, and and as you start thinking about these things, you you realize that our dogma is actually quite limited. It's pretty small. There 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 are there are a surprisingly few 
things that are completely central that are non-negotiable. And then the the following circle, the a slightly bigger circle, um, is is doctrine. Um, and these are um, maybe they, these are are important convictions that are not um, central to the Christian faith. That you know you have to you must believe in order to be a Christian. Um, so, for example, what's an example of a doctrinal? Well, I mean, uh, I think baptism is a good one because I've been thinking about this a lot lately. There's, there's, uh, there's the Friends Church doesn't practice, the Quaker Friends doesn't practice baptism because they believe uh, that we do not need any ritual works of righteousness to come to God and Mm -hmm. that John baptized with water, but Jesus baptized with the Spirit. And I'm sharing that because (laughs) they appeal to scripture. So they, they back up what they believe is scripture. But then on the other end of the spectrum, um, there's people who believe infant baptism is the, the New Testament correlation to circumcision, that you are incorporated into the community uh, at, as an infant through infant baptism. So there's like, there's these different views on the doctrine of baptism. And like, is this really, like, do we really need to like not break bread with one another uh, over this? Yeah. So like, and those are not just like arbitrary, like, oh, we're going to believe this. It's like they are taking scriptural truth and interpreting it in a way that they believe to be the best. And there's a true intention to follow Christ through what they do, how they practice. Mm -hmm. And then another, the, the bigger circle. So three concentric circles, you got dogma, doctrine, and then the biggest circle, the the most wide ranging circle, it's kind of infinite is, is preference. Meaning um, I'm a, I'm a believer who connects with God primarily through hymns and liturgy. Mm -hmm. While there's another person who, uh, across the street connects with God through um, maybe um, contemporary music and more even like charismatic prayer. Um, just preferences of, of you know, the uniqueness with which God has created us to connect with him um, that are different from other people, not right or wrong, just different. Yeah. So um, you can see the kind of like, you know, descending order of importance where, you know, dogma is, uh, you really can't call yourself a Christian if you don't uphold these truths. And then you have doctrine, which is I'm taking a, a core practice, a core truth of scripture and interpreting it in a way that I believe is most, most faithful to what God intends. Mm-hmm. That's important, but not as important as dogma. And then you have preference, which is in the grand scheme of things, important to you in your spiritual life, but not important to salvation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's opposed to this is really harsh, either or thinking it's, it's, it's really hard to navigate stuff like this with this either, or like either it's all dogma or it's nothing. But I just want to point out that what happens though, is we start saying you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Plus, you know, whatever your traditions sort of major issues are like so plus mm-hmm. you have to speak in tongues plus you had to be baptized as an infant or plus uh you don't uh drink or play cards or go to movies you know like plus you wear like don't cut your hair or wear a head covering and it's like mm-hmm. man uh when you look at all the different denominations and christian traditions you begin to like see like wow we've really added a lot to this dogma category and like mm-hmm. i don't think that's what jesus intended and the other thing when you look at it so 
a really harsh either or thinking is kind of incompatible with this, but also um, not having humility. Like each mm-hmm. one of these traditions, I've met Christians who I do not agree with, and they believe, like they genuinely believe that what they believe is true. And they're trying as best they can to be faithful to their interpretation of scripture. And I can sit back and say, well, they're just a little deceived in that belief and I'm right and they're wrong. But like, mm-hmm. and that may be true on some things, but for us to sit back and think we're a hundred percent right. And that's why we're part of our, like our tradition preaches the Bible. Like our mm-hmm. tradition interprets the Bible most faithfully. Like, yeah, hopefully as I say it out loud, it becomes obvious kind of how arrogant that is. <laughs> like, yeah. And so I think that's a lot like Pharisees. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Which also the heresy hunters, like if you read the gospels, the people who question Jesus on uh, why he healed on the Sabbath or brought to him questions about sort of these doctrinal things related to the law of Moses. Like the people who brought him those questions mm-hmm. were the Pharisees. Right. Yep. Um, yeah. So anyways, one way my professor put it again with that dogma doctrine preference was their uh, dogma are those things written in blood doctrine are things written in pen and preferences are things written in pencil. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it's sort of the, the emphasis. Um, yeah. I should, I should name drop my professor. Cause I've like mentioned a couple of things that he taught in this episode, Dr. Chris bounds at Indiana Wesleyan university. I think he's back hey, there. He was at Asbury, uh, but I think he's back at Indiana Wesleyan university now. So thank you, Dr. Chris bounds. I am sure he does not listen to this, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, yeah. I guess to bring it all together is, um, when we're talking about engaging culture, we're also talking about different methods of engaging with God in culture, different theology, different preferences for worship. And um, as Christians, it's our responsibility to engage with those differences as well, um, to not make enemies out of fellow believers, to not make enemies out of churches. Um, I think that is completely antithetical to what Jesus would have us do. And there is a place for you know, loving correction, but not, I don't think there's any place for public, for loving correction on the public stage, you know, a blog post, a podcast, you know, publicly calling someone out, um, like a lot of people tend to do in today's day and age. Um, no matter how loving you think you're being, it's not loving to, to be public about that. And I just think that's a, a toxic element of Christian culture that needs to be um i think we need to work on that i mean my myself as well i'm not i'm guilty of 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 that as well um, yeah to some extent but me too yeah but we try not to and we try not to make this podcast or, or our conversations in private or whatever we try not to to major on that yeah i'm going to read a large section real quick from Leslie Newbegin, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Oh, no, not New. No, he's the worst. I don't want to listen to that. He's a heretic. Just... <laughs> he's, also, he's also dead, so. Uh, <laughs> but says he was then his theology is a lot better than ours, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. He says, if we turn to the ministry of Jesus himself, it is, of course, clear that Jesus shocked the established authorities by being a friend to all, not only to the destitute and hungry, but also to those rich extortioners, tax collectors, whom all decent people ostracized, 
that the shocking thing was not that he sided with the poor against the rich, but that he met everyone equally with the same unlimited mercy and the same unconditional demand for total loyalty. If we look at the end of his earthly ministry at the cross, it is clear that Jesus was rejected by all, rich and poor, rulers and people alike. Before the cross of Jesus, there are no innocent parties. His cross is not for some and against others. It is the place where all are guilty and all are forgiven. Forgiven. He says, I began this chapter by saying that the question of contextualization is a question about how the gospel comes alive in a particular context. The history of the church and missionary experiences certainly show that this coming alive happens in a myriad of different and unpredictable ways. Nevertheless, the gospel is not an empty form into which everyone is free to pour his or her own content. The content of the gospel is Jesus Christ in the fullness of his ministry, death, and resurrection. The gospel is this and not anything else. Jesus is who he is, and though our perceptions of him will be shaped by our own situation and the mental formation we have received from our culture, our need is to see him as he truly is. This is why we have to listen to the witness of the whole church of all places and ages. And then lastly, he says, true contextualization happens when there is a community which lives faithfully by the gospel. And in that same costly identification with people in the real situations, as we see in the earthly ministry of Jesus. So let's try to follow the way of Jesus and engage the culture around us. Good stuff. Thanks for listening. Like, share, post on social media. Yeah. Do you want to give a want to give a preview of what's coming up? Episodes. Yeah. Near future. Uh, I think we're going to talk to a friend of ours who is. um, (laughs) This is can be as we talk about doctrine, please. Who is a woman in ministry. And we're going to, uh, we've talked about it before on this podcast, but we're going to kind of talk about it again because it seems to continue to be uh, an issue in some circles. And so we just kind of hear her story. Uh, there's um, a family member of mine who was a pastor for years and right now is uh, working in the secular world. And uh, if you will, and they are, um, they are now trying to be a pastor to pastors. And so they have unique insight on sort of what it's like to be a pastor. And I will talk about them and just sort of tips and insights and things they learned in their years of ministry. And um, it'll be interesting. It's sort of a peer behind the curtain of, of pastoral ministry. But I think even if you're not a pastor, there'll be some things to talk about there. And then Matt and I have tossed around the idea of doing a Q and uh, a Q and response, a question response. Yes. I don't want to say question and answer because Matt and I do not pretend to have all the answers, but we enjoy responding. Um, so we'd like to do an episode like that in the near future, but we need your questions. And if you'd like to submit a question, uh, you can go to our Facebook page and look for Theologizing Life uh, and uh, become a follower of the page, like the page and all that good stuff. And then you can submit a question there via public comment, or you could private message us as well. We're on Instagram as well. And Instagram. Yes. Like and follow us there as well. And then share our pages, help promote. If you think this podcast is meaningful and helpful and, you know, not subpar. <laughs> what we're known for. The most not subpar podcast around. <laughs> we're not. It's not awesome. It's not significantly above par, but it's at about par. Theologizing life. We're adequate. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, We should probably end the recording now. 